Hello and welcome to yet another episode, almost, we'll call it the penultimate episode of 2023. I am Sean Merwin here with my big thumbs up co-host, Teos Avedia. Hey, Teos, great to see you yet again. Fantastic to see you. Uh, cheers to you. Happy uh, Christmas. I have my uh, holiday themed uh, D&D mug uh, that I got. Um, I think it came with paperwork saying that I couldn't say that they had all authorized me or something like that. I don't remember. It was funny. It it's, it sounds about right. You are only authorized to drink out of this when you roll 10 or higher. <laughs> that's that actually would solve a lot of problems in this world. If that's how drinking worked. But, uh, but, but look what exactly, else. Exactly. When I beverage, I it, look how well I beverage that. Oh, mm. that's, that's mm. some good stuff right there. Is it is it eggnog though? I mean, there is eggnog. Okay. Uh, is there a lot of rum in it? It's it's eggnog. I mean, what can you eggnog does what eggnog will do. One cannot stop the eggnog. Oh, <laughs> look at us. Cup mm-hmm. cup full of cheer on this let, episode. Let, we're we're double fi- we're double fisting it here with different drinks. We are festive. I even have water. I, think I'm, I mean, our our very. Yeah, you, you're good. You got one more than I do. Uh, I think the various drinks that we're having pretty much sums up a roller coaster 2023. You know, we hit the ground running this year with the OGL crisis, and it's been up and down and up and down since. And we, 2023 is almost over. Maybe next week we'll take a take a look at the year in review or something. Uh, but yeah. for now, we should probably get to it. That's why we're paid the big bucks, Teos, to, uh, to to drop knowledge and answer questions. And we're going to get to the question answering part of our segment here with our listener corner. The first message coming in via our Patreon Discord from Honor in the I Age, who says, in Mastering Dungeons 168, we've done 168 episodes, John said that resource management adventures should target longer between levels rather than a single four-hour session. Why so? Is it treating levels themselves as a resource or just to play into a survival exploration feel? For context, I'm currently working on codifying my campaign setting, which is focused on heroic exploration, by which I mean in this context, exploration that doesn't rely on tracking rations, torches, and arrows, which seems to be a common feature but instead allowing class resources to fill this resource tracking need. For me, this ties closely to the length of the adventuring day, but not necessarily the number of sessions. Is there an option I'm overlooking here? And there, when I say resource management, different people can use that word for different things. So when I was talking on that show about resource management, I was talking about the type of adventuring where the character granted resources like hit points, hit dice, spell slots, key points, those sorts of things are constantly being depleted. So there is a race between completing the objective and running out of those resources. And that is what D&D has sort of been over the years, starting with, with, you know, OD&D, original D&D and going up. Rations, water, torches, arrows are a different kind of resource management. And the the action economy 
is yet another sort of resource management. And I'm sure we could think of more if we try. But what I'm talking about is when you ask, you know, we're still not to the center of the dungeon where we need to get, and we're out of hit dice and our cleric is down to cantrips, you know, do we continue or do we risk a rest? That Mm -hmm. is my sort of the resource manager I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, so I will add that some of my favorite experiences have been around those losses of resources and it spans various editions, right? So like I can think of when I played OD&D, which was long after OD&D came out, the, the, the you know original box set, uh, I went back and played it and we had, you know, like our 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 pack horses that uh, and I was running the game, but the party would like throw the pack horses at monsters, right? Until there were no more pack horses. And then they just had to deal with the fact that now things were just even worse and even more deadly. And that kind of feel was a big part of what we enjoyed about the experience. There were things we liked and didn't like about it, but mm-hmm. that was that sense of fear was palpable. And in my AD&D games, that sense of fear was also pretty palpable around there is only so much I can take. And rest is not easy and in fact like when i think of like temple of elemental evil and i kept key memories of that and there are a lot of memorable parts of the adventure but what i think of most often is situations where we would come so close to death whether i was playing it or running it the party's near death they head back to town and they might get attacked on the way back by a random encounter and that could be a tpk right and so even that is part mm-hmm. of your calculus as a player. And then on the way back, we had a situation where I was running one. And on the way back to the temple, so we're fully rested. We covered what we did in town. We start heading towards the temple, hit a really bad random encounter, and everybody wants to go back to town again. <laughs> you know, like It can be that mm-hmm. taxing in a system. Right. Um, third edition, a situation, a battle interactive in an organized play where this you know wizard player who was a very clever player, he starts casting scrolls i'm like what are you doing he's like i'm out of spell slots and it's like whoa you know like you're using those little scraps of power that you have chucked in your backpack ages ago right right? and it was that kind of battle and those things are really super fun when they come up i don't want the game to be that way all the time but i want that possibility to be there right and in order for that possibility to even take place you have to have enough encounters and yes, even enough short rests in fifth edition in order to drain hit dice, spells, all those things to, to get it down to the point where it becomes interesting and dramatic and fun. Because if you just run a four-hour session, even at low levels, maybe you're getting four encounters in. Yeah. And does that drain the resources? Probably not. At high yeah. levels, when casters have scads and scads of... Uh, of spell slots and many, many, many hit dice, you need several four-hour sessions worth of play just to start to get people to where their resources are low. And that's why I asked the question on the Eldritch Lorecast about a week ago, are we ready for an edition of D&D where that resource management component is just gone? Mm-hmm. Because the game has these sacred cows right? Spell slots, where that begs for a resource management style game, Mm -hmm. but the game itself doesn't support a resource management (laughs) style of play. So it's just sort of there. Now, fourth edition got rid of spell slots, Mm -hmm. 
And it, what happened with fourth edition, it was a wonderful game. It was a great game that old school players did not like because it got rid of those things. So it's, it's this balance of what do you want the game to be? And are you willing to design the game to be that game with the understanding that you will then alienate a part of your audience who does not appreciate the uh, jettison yeah. of those uh, <laughs> of those elements that they like in their games? Yeah, and, you know, and as this makes you think about the Planescape adventure we're reviewing, because sometimes folks say, "Well, you can't review an adventure." Uh, without playing it. And, and I don't think that's true at all. But there are some things that you don't know. And, and it's good to put a finger on them. And one of them is, I'm very curious how the lethality and the the glitch nature, I won't go into those spoilers, but how those play together with the pacing of the adventure, right? So the adventure often has what I think are possibly very deadly situations that you can get out of. But if you don't, you're facing a very deadly thing one or more characters may die. But the way D&D often works is if a character would truly die, not being down, but die, the party risks mm -hmm. has a big risk of a TPK. Right? It's a hot, cold switch. You're either in one zone or you're not. And if characters are truly dying, mm -hmm. you're often in a highly dangerous situation. So how does that play as an adventure to maybe have a number of these situations come up? That I only know if I run it, right? Like, I really don't know. But I'm very curious, as exactly. folks really start running through this adventure, what we'll hear about that lethality. Maybe it's not there at all. And so, you know, it's actually the opposite mm -hmm. um, because they're so spread out and paced that if it isn't lethal, then it's probably really easy. And now you gain a level and you, mm -hmm. why, that wasn't even threatened, you know? And so it could feel really weird if it isn't there. If it's right. too visible, then you might feel like, geez, I'm just constantly getting uh -huh. beaten up. I don't know. Right. Yeah. It's uh it's a great question mm -hmm. and one that we will see when when the revised fifth edition comes out, if there's any talk, even if it's just in the in the Dungeon Master's guide, about that sort of campaign pacing. Mm -hmm. And we also got something from Nigel Rush via Twitter. Hello, gentlemen. He might must not know us too well. Um the Leroy Jenkins with a flat tire gambit. And we know that uh, that Nigel is from the British Isles because the tire is spelled with a Y, which uh, is so cool. Uh, I have a barbarian player in my game that has a problem. He is very much the first out of the taxi and the last to the bar. <laughs> we all know one. Uh, so in other words, he's ready to go, but he doesn't want to pay. Uh, he lurks two turns away from the melee deliberately, allowing everyone else, including the hapless monster, to take a minimum two rounds damage before he so much as graces the fight with his presence, as though it is the most natural way for barbarians to behave. Always screaming charge from behind a bush in the middle distance is beyond exasperating, and he has always been like it. Once the fight is over, however... He will be into any chest like Cerberus in a sausage factory before anyone else gets the chance to either draw breath or pop swords back into their scabbards. I've been playing D&D with this chap for nearly 40 years. I know. And I love him to bits, but his barbarian with a risk assessment, I think that maybe risk uh, averseness, Burden. is infuriating. Yep. Are there any clever tactics that a DM and fellow player can use to combat this behavior? Or is it a case of 
You have been letting him get away with it for four decades. You'll just have to suck it up. <laughs> Love the show. It's essential listening and great company. Nigel from Wales, a Saxon abroad in the true land of dragons. Oh, Nigel, yeah. love it. Love Wonderful. it. Love it so much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening. All right. So let's let's dispense with the, you know what's coming first. How did the other players feel? How do you feel? Is it something you can deal with by expressing to the player, you know, you're really making a lot of people angry with this? We'll, we'll get that out of the way. <laughs> can you lean into it? Can you lean into it and make it a part of the story, a part of the character? Uh, because then you can do some fun things with it, such as there's nothing to say that the threats always have to come from the front, right? If the barbarian is hiding in the bushes, there are such things as magical and dangerous plants in D&D. Uh, so set up a situation where you give the barbarian a perfect place to hide, the threat looks like it's out in front. Everyone goes forward. The real threat is the bushes, which are then having two rounds to snack on the barbarian. Uh, does the barbarian worship a deity of any kind? Because if so, what does the deity think of this? Right? Cord, I think, was the Greyhawk. Was yeah. it the Greyhawk? Yeah. Right? The 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 strength god. Yep. You know, Cord may look at this uh chap and say, you know what? I've had enough of this. This this is bristling my godly uh, neck hair. And I am going to come down and have a little chat with this barbarian. And you could turn it into a role-playing situation where Cord uh, decides to test this barbarian to see if this barbarian really has what it takes. Uh, Teos, any thoughts? I mean, it reminds me of a player that I used to play with. Uh, his name was, uh, his character name was Ansev, backwards for Vecna. And Ansev would declare at the beginning of play, I am 60 feet behind the rest of the party. And he did this because he had decided not to, as all other third edition wizards, take the toad familiar. And he had still mm -hmm. decided to drop his constitution down to meaningless levels so that he could boost everything else. So he was very, very vulnerable, total glass cannon wizard. So what he would do is stay so far back. And, and he'd, what he'd say to DM is, what Ansev thinks is, I am so far back that nothing will attack me. Yeah. If something for some reason really truly would wait that long to attack me, well, then I guess they're going to murder me. But that's my plan. And the DM would usually think about yeah. it and kind of go like, yeah, okay. And they'd usually not like just force it, which is what he was trying to do through explaining it, right? They would, you know, right. but it meant the first round he was often catching up to everybody else. And mm -hmm. but he was hilarious about it. It was not destructive right. to the play experience. It was part of the hilarity of it. And there were all kinds of things like where he couldn't get inside the room. So he lobs a fireball through a through the window and he asks the half orc where to place the fireball because he can't see inside. The half orc tells him the wrong direction. All of this in character. So he puts it where the half-orc doesn't say to put it. Because we're that fun a group, right? That we understand each other. Right. So he literally doesn't, he does the opposite of what the character told him. Because he knew that the character would get it wrong. And, you know, like that kind of fun, then it's okay. We all enjoyed it. Now, I will say, sometimes I wanted to uh, have this game. And then go play in a different game for a bit. And then come back to this game. Mm -hmm. So that's one way you can deal with it. Have another group that lets you get to those 
other types of play you want, right? Like, and that's true of everything. Like if these are all like, you might really enjoy bashing things to death, but then you need a more cerebral group that, you know, it's not that the kids aren't smart or whatever, but you, you go with the group that, you know, wants to role play and whatever, and, and you play those kinds of games. And so that's one option is to mix it up. But I, I, I like your advice. You, you have to think about how destructive or how fun it is. And therefore, what kind of uh, what kind of course corrections to apply? But if you are, I mean, you use the word frustrated, right? And so when our listener says frustrated, I think then you do need to at some point get to where you probably have a talk, and you can do minor things to kind mm -hmm. of see if you can get some course correction, apply some pressure, right? That encourages a little behavior. But you may have to just sit down and say, "Hey, my friend, I enjoyed this for a while. It's getting a little frustrating." The, the character concept and I get it and you're being true to your character, but for the good of play, can we make some adjustments? Right. Mm -hmm. To just improve exactly. it and make it a little more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's part of being a honest, curse. right? Your friends be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A curse that if you are not the first person to strike the, the uh, enemy in every battle for the next three battles, uh, you lose a point of strength each time mm -hmm. that will, that will, course correct in game now that may cause hard feelings yeah. the other way but you know as teo said if you could turn it into a story assuming that the players like the story if the character if the player is just doing this because they fear that their character is going to die um then that's time to step out and say listen you know let's have a talk about what we want out of our games etc cetera, etc cetera, et cetera. um yeah but thank you for the Cerberus and a Sausage Factory uh, line. That is, ah, love it. Now let's get into our news and commentary section, starting with some pretty sad news. With Hasbro laying off many, many people, including deep cuts to the D&D team and other folks at Wizards of the Coast. So... If you think back a few episodes, we discussed that Hasbro's third quarter earnings were pretty dismal. Follow, and that follows you know, other bad news for their toy business, causing net revenue to drop 10% in quarter three alone, a loss of $428 million between January and the end of September. So what did we say at the time, Teos? <laughs> Hasbro needs answers. Mm -hmm. And what were those answers, Tails? Sadly, so far, it's layoffs. They did one set mm. of 800 earlier this year, and now they announced, and we've begun to see, the layoff of 1,100 people this year. And that is about 20% of the Hasbro workforce, just under that. So it looks like the last time during those 800-person uh, layoffs, Watsi was spared for the most part. But this time, the layoffs were so great that it even affected Wizards. Um, yeah. And it's not unusual to see these broad cuts, you know, even across departments or parts of the company that were doing well. So this impacted Magic the Gathering, the D&D teams, uh, including people who we know personally, who we think are great. Um, and we were very, very surprised to see. Yeah. Who, was, who was laid off? Well... Dan Dillon was the first to speak out publicly, saying that he had been let go. He's been there five years, awesome game designer, awesome person. Um, the first surprise, surprise was Mike Merles, who was the Ma a Magic the Gathering director. He ushered a 
fifth edition into being and was one of the major forces at Wizards behind the Baldur's Gate 3 licensing. He flew to Europe several times to coordinate uh, the license of that game with Larian. Chris Lindsay, who helped architect the DMs Guild of all things, um, which had to be a great revenue earner for Wizards. And at one point he led all of organized play, the Guild Adepts program, and also you know, worked with several other third parties on licensing and coordination. Uh, Liz Shu, who's been the head of licensing and publishing for D&D for years, who took an early retirement. And, and Liz, uh, you know, Liz is, yeah. is a person who doesn't often um, get to the level where fans hear about her. But Liz has yeah. been, she basically was the lead person from the sort of D&D upper kind of management mm -hmm. side that spearheaded 5e. Um, yeah. I think of Liz Shu sort of a, as a Kathleen Kennedy type. Right. That, but, but just not notorious, right? Just in the background, trying to get all the pieces to align and, and move forward. And, and so significant person to, to then decide, well, I'll take this early retirement package. Right. Yeah. When I was interacting with wizards folks on projects and they were talking about like the people who they were answering to mm -hmm. Liz's name came up constantly. Yeah. Um, Brie Heiss, the art director for D&D, uh, Natalie Egan, a product manager, Amy Dowland, D&D Beyond uh, producer and host, uh, David Hartless, D&D Beyond director. All of these folks uh, have said in one way or another that they uh, are no longer with Wizards of the Coast. And immediately we saw a response. Teos, you want to take over some of these <laughs> questions and, and the answers to these questions? Yeah, and I mean, to me, it's really striking how different the reactions are from where they were 10 years ago when this was fairly commonplace, right? And and I think there are a lot of folks that are new that maybe don't understand the historical context, context that think of it first and foremost as a fan, which is very understandable, rather than understanding the business world. Um, so, you know, is this related to the OGL? Not at all. And I see nothing at all and, and hear nothing at all of anything indicative of like a backlash against folks who were involved in the OGL or anything like that. It has absolutely nothing to do with the OGL. It's very sad that 2023 is marked by the OGL at the beginning and these layoffs at the end. It has certainly tainted what 2023 could have been for for D&D and for Wizards and for Hasbro. Um, but it's not related. Um, is Hasbro unaware of how well D&D has done? Not at all. We've been covering each of the quarters. Um, it used to be that Hasbro would never, ever talk about D&D. That era ended more than five years ago, more than 10 years ago. And it has been significant how often Hasbro thinks about D&D and how much it has even had to deal with the investors, the owners of its stock, talking about the importance of Wizards of the Coast, Magic the Gathering, and D&D. So how does all of this happen, which I think is what everybody is, is ultimately trying to wonder, and, and, and what's the appropriate reaction, right? Is the appropriate reaction to say, I hate wizards, I'll never purchase anything from them, how could they do this to people in December, um, you know, do they not have hearts and souls? So this happens because we live in a world where companies are not allowed to have several bad years. They are expected to pursue growth relentlessly. So when that growth does not happen, companies must do something 
even if nothing has actually gone wrong, or even if the thing that may have gone wrong can't be found or pinpointed, right? So in the toy industry, there is no super clarity as to what is going on. Maybe people just aren't playing with toys, or maybe they will next year. It's just not clear, right? Mattel's having a great year, probably because of Barbie. But that level of intelligence just doesn't exist. And the expectation, nonetheless, from investors, from capitalism as a system, is that you will do something wrong, something about it. But only certain moves are rewarded by all of your investors. And something that investors strangely love rewarding is layoffs. Wall Street loves to recognize a layoff and buy more of your stock. Despite the fact that layoff math doesn't prove itself over time. Uh, there isn't good, the studies don't back up that a layoff means a company will become successful. Um, but, but nonetheless, that's how investors act. Mm -hmm. Are December layoffs cruel and unusual? Yeah, they're totally cruel, but a layoff at any time is cruel. And it's not unusual at all. It really has to do with your yearly revenue, the yearly reporting. Most companies will report on a four quarter basis that starts in January and ends at the end of the year. And so you are gonna measure your year by the end of that quarter. So that's when you're really facing the math. And in theory, what you've been doing all of those quarters is avoiding larger layoffs. But come that end of the year, now you gotta pay the piper, you've gotta look at the books and you've gotta make the decision of what to do. Why are you doing it? Because if you didn't, in theory, your company would face even better, worse situation the following year, right? Not just from stock, but from, from all of the, the situation that you're facing, right? If toys really aren't selling, then you can't have that many people make them and make that many and so on. Um, and we see this across all kinds of industries, right? Um, Sean, anything you want to add here? No, it, I was sort of surprised with how vehement it, the reaction was. And then I realized that Wizards hasn't done this sort of layoff in in over 10 years yeah. or if they haven't been as as public and this used to be a, an annual thing it would be oh it's two weeks before christmas let's go to en world and see who's been laid off yeah and so i i realized oh you know people who were 8 10 12 15 18 at the time of those layoffs are now 8 28 and they just maybe haven't lived in a world, maybe they're not like from a working class environment mm -hmm. where these things are annual. Uh, I can't count the number of times my family who are, you know, mainly our factory workers have been laid off. Mm -hmm. I can't count the number of times I've been laid off. <laughs> and and it just, it's it's a thing that happens. And, and it's, is it fun? No. Is it good? No. Is it because of a system that's fundamentally broken? Yes. But go to the Fortune 500, which was, Hasbro is no longer a member of because their revenue has fallen them out of that uh, Fortune 500 ranking, and see how many people, how many layoffs those companies have. Yeah. Uh, you know, now you're talking the hundreds of thousands, and it's it's just the way that capitalism works, and unfortunately, it's such a machine that it protects itself from, from, uh, from any sort of repercussions. Yeah, or corrections. As, as people have said, or exactly, as people have said, you know, the people, if you boycott or if you yell about mm. this, 
the people that are causing this will never hear you. They don't know you exist. They don't know I exist. They will never read your tweets. They will never read your Facebook posts. Uh, and it will just continue. And trying to get revenge on them is impossible. The yeah. people that you're getting revenge on are the people who are going to lose their jobs next year. So it's just, it's it's an impossible situation to be in and to try to rectify. And a question I hear often is, you know, is D&D beholden to Hasbro? Has D&D become Hasbro? Has it lost its presence? Is there no more wizards? Is there no more D&D? And yes and no, right? There are benefits and detriments to being part of a larger company. Hasbro is how you're able to purchase D&D Beyond, right? Which is widely revered as a smart move. Hasbro is what allows you to launch a movie and a TV show. It's what allows to have talks with Netflix, as we'll talk about later. Uh, it can connect D&D teams to the writers of Stranger Things. It can do all of this, right? And D&D has said throughout the process that they still have a large measure of autonomy. They are still D&D. But it's also part of this large corporation. And when bad times hit, it's affected. And there is going to be a time when strategies are set out and you may or may not agree with those strategies. That is part of it. But, you know, are layoffs unprecedented? You know, you talked about how they've happened in these past, but also across the history of, of TRTG space, we've seen this. The thing is that often most, most RPG companies never reach a size where this is even talked about because they just let like one person go because that's the level of adjustment, unfortunately, that they're doing to their budget, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Probably the, the example I can really think of is Evil Hat. They really invested in, you know, let's hire an art person, let's hire an editor. They did a bunch of these things and then they had to lay them all off one time near the end of the year, I believe, um, because the finances had turned and they have not gone back and hired those folks, right? That was just... It just happened. So it'll happen to a company of any size, or it can happen to a company of any size. It doesn't inherently make them evil. And I think along these lines, yesterday there was a uh, the Banff podcast did a invited on Dan Dillon and Aiton Bernstein, who's a, a senior developmental editor who um, was also laid off. Invited both of these folks just laid off to come on the podcast and discuss the layoffs. And I bet a lot of people showed up expecting this to be a, we hate wizards, here's the injustice that happened to us. And they didn't do that, right? It was the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah they got a layoff package, they can't discuss it. Uh, they both said nothing was cruel or unusual about the layoff and wizards has been helpful offering them as much as they could offer them uh, to, to be there or, or to, to do well going forward. They said, please do not boycott Wizards or Hasbro on their behalf. Do you want to do the thing? Do your thing. Right. We're not going to tell you not to, but please don't say that you're doing it for the people that were laid off, because at least in two cases, they don't want you to do that. They are still big D&D fans. They're still going to be buying D&D. They're going to raise their kids playing D&D. Uh, what, what else did they talk about, Deus? Aiton really gave glowing kudos to Jeremy Crawford. He emphasized how awesome, both of them emphasized how awesome all of their colleagues are. 
Both said they would work there again. Right? Dan says it's the dream job he didn't know existed for most of his life. He said he was absolutely happy with his job, thrilled to work there. Quote, I would do it again. I don't regret it, not for a second. And he said he couldn't say anything bad about that experience, right? And that's probably not what a lot of folks expect, but that's just the, the unfortunate reality uh, that is against what we want as fans, where we want to do something. We want to rage and because it is it is wrong and it is terrible but maybe not for the reasons we think and it's far more complicated than we might initially think um they both also said that they're super positive about the coming 2024 rules updates i think some folks were asking questions expecting this to be a yeah i don't know what the company's doing what are they thinking no they said we are so excited for the 2024 updates we really think people are going to love them we can't wait to get them you know we'll be buying them so uh, the link to that video yeah. is in our show notes or look for the BAMF podcast. You can find it on YouTube as well because uh, I think it was a live YouTube video. So it's in the live section. We have also a list in our show notes, Sean, of all the other folks that were laid off, uh, including across you know software areas, communications, uh, program managers, um, Magic the Gathering areas, and a lot of folks who are very highly regarded who were let off. And, and it's worth saying that what often happens in these situations, because one of the things that, that I think I've seen over and over again is, you know, why are they killing off the golden goose, right? Wizards has done so well, Magic, D&D, this is what's doing well. The reality is they have been as insulated as possible, but when you're cutting this many jobs, you can't just spare entire groups and in fact is not rewarded to do so. So you must apply some budget to each of your departments and areas. And so they likely assigned a dollar figure to folks like uh, uh, Kyle Brink or to uh, Dan, the vice president above him. And probably they had to sit down and look at everybody and go, well, what can we do? And it's a horrible calculus where you have to think, do I take this one really amazing person who has a really high salary or do I take these two other people or four people that are new but do so much of the work? Right. And it, there is no proper answer to that. And so that's how you end up with someone as good as Dan being laid off uh, or as good as Mike Merle's being laid off. Like it's attempt to make this math work uh, rather than and it, it, it is not indicative of some lack of understanding of what makes wizards good. Right. Yeah. And it's not because they spoke out about the OGL crisis. So that's not because of this other or that other conspiracy theory that you may be sitting on. Yeah. It is, as, as Teo says, it's it's the math of it and the staffing. Can we find someone else to pick up these people's tasks uh, if if we let them go? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, last anything else on this? That yeah. Yeah. So the last thing is just there. Penny Arcade has had a couple of comics, uh, as you'd expect, pointing uh, fun at this situation trying to 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 offer their commentary and and both of their recent uh comics have had some really poignant uh pieces about them because each each comic comes with a blog about it and jerry holkins has such a great way of talking about these things and it's not the only you know view but but it's a, a really good view and he in, in his <laughs> awesome voice the full quote is, is, is in our show notes, or you can find it on, on Penny Arcade, penny-arcade.com. Um, 
But I, but I love this part where, where he says, but like the OGL modifications, I suspect this tumult presages a more digital future for the product. I don't see how it couldn't. Magic makes money hand over fist, but Dungeons and Dragons has always been a sticky wicket outside of pure licensing. Imagine if you could buy one hamburger and then you and your friends could eat that hamburger for 30 years. D&D is, for lack of a better term than I've used previously, a culture. Serving that culture is such an honor. Does such a culture survive, truly survive, lodged within a pair of digitally aggressively monetized parentheses? Yeah, it's very right straight to the point Mm -hmm. um, as Jerry. Well, he's not right straight to the point, but he gets to the point after using many, many large words (laughs) that are generally funny and quite, uh, quite astute. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that's there in the show notes. And again, you know, our condolences to everybody who lost their jobs, not just at Wizards of the Coast and not just at Hasbro, but for whatever corporation, whatever business you're working for, if you were let go, uh, you know, yeah. start of this winter, um, we're so sorry. And we hope you quickly find your feet again. Yeah. So from the bad news to the really news, uh, Netflix may be creating a Baldur's Gate 3 spinoff series or movie. A giant freaking robot, a digital news site, says that Netflix is in talks to the rights of a live action adaptation of the Baldur's Gate 3 video game. Baldur's Gate 3, of course, just won big time at the Game Awards. Game of the Year, Player's Voice, Best Performance, Community Support, a role-playing game, multiplayer game. Uh, It's unclear whether these talks are focused on a series, a movie, neither, both, how close to final negotiations are, but it's not a shock to see news, at least the rumors of news Mm -hmm. like this, when a video game now makes as big a splash as Baldur's Gate 3 did. Yeah, and we've seen a couple of examples of video games uh, becoming a, a a show of some kind, whether animated or otherwise on Netflix. So yeah, I, I could see that. I think a lot of people would welcome it. So, so we'll see that could be a, a big uh, feather in everyone's cap. So we'll, we'll hope for that. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Spelljammer Academy, the Vecna dossier and the D&D Beyond Advent Calendar, James. <laughs> the D&D Advent Calendar at times would have sort of fun things you could download in past years, you know, coloring pages, stuff like that. This year, it's been all coupons until uh, we got uh, mm. yesterday, I believe it was the 17th. On the 17th, they had the the thing of the day. If you click on the little digital door is that you can download previously free, otherwise no longer available Spelljammer Academy, which is a, a set of four, I think, adventures. Really good that introduces the Spelljammer system and in fact can take you to the start of the adventure. So it can even be a nice you know, extension of it. That had been free and then was no longer available, so you can get it again now through the end of the year. Same with the Vecna dossier, which is a high-level adventure where you go off against Vecna. It's a very small piece, and and it has information on Vecna, but it's a fun download. And given that there will be a Vecna adventure coming next year, then this can be a fun thing to get. So if you'd missed on those, act now by the end of the year. Follow those links and download it. You can either find the advent calendar on the Indie Beyond or click the link in our show notes. And gee, may I say again, I want PDFs. <laughs> I want these things to always be up. I don't know why they go away to begin with, but at least they're back for now. Duly noted. 
So what's the greatest RPG adventure of all time? That question was answered by a lot of folks on the blog Scroll for Initiative, as the host asked designers to weigh in on their choice of the best adventure. And Teos and I were very happy to give our choices. Uh, what did you choose, Teos? Well, I uh, was my typical person. I couldn't make up my mind. <laughs> Uh, I even named something you wrote, Defiance and Flan, because I think that that has been one of the mm. toughest jobs anybody has ever gotten in organized playwriting. And you nailed it so well that they basically had to do it for the longest, longest time to kind of keep bringing that magic. So I write about that. Uh, I agree with Scott Fitzgerald Gray that Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh is there. I, of course, have to talk about Pharaoh, which mm. we've covered on our show. But the where I go a little interesting, mm. maybe, is to, to bring some non-D&D attention to things. And it's talking about the Eclipse Phase science fiction adventures and how they do truly mind-blowing experiences. Things like where, and I've talked about on the show before, but you know, you are all playing the exact same character. You just woke up from being backed up. You all have their bodies with the same personality downloaded in. And you see on the news that presumably the real you has just committed a murder. And the DM says to you, what do you do? Right? And just that kind of just mm -hmm. sci-fi that's out of the best books, out of the best novels, the best TV shows, and really put there. Where, where I see a lot of companies that do sci-fi fail at that. They just It's the same old D&D &D adventure. Go investigate this dungeon. It's a sci-fi dungeon. Go escort this caravan. It's a sci-fi caravan, right? These, you know, eclipse phase to me. What'd you pick? Well, I read the question wrong. I didn't read what's the best adventure of all time. I thought it was what was the adventure that impacted you the most. Mm -hmm. So I chose an adventure for the top secret uh, game called Operation Spreckenhalterspell. Sure. And that this impacted me because it was the first taste of a non-D&D &D game that I ever got. Someone had it and they weren't going to use it, so they gave it to me, which is how I got almost all of my D&D books before the age of 18. Uh, so I read this and I was like, this isn't D&D. This is a different game and it does different things and it tells different cool stories. And so it, it sort of taught me that you can do lots of different things with this hobby and it doesn't have to be sword and sorcery, high fantasy gritty fantasy whatever it can do super spies mm -hmm. um, so that's why i chose that uh, but there were uh, lots of folks uh, mike shea and and monty cook robin and laws. you name you know luminary industry robin laws they were they were giving their opinions so it's it's a really you know it's a good list it's got a lot of what you would expect right some of the classics uh of of D D. Some people chose things outside of D&D. Yeah, James Tricasso names the Dracula but, dossier, which you worked on. Nice Black Agents, fantastic. Yep, and, yep. That's, that, that's a really great adventure, too. Uh, and so it's hard to say the best adventure because best is totally sure. subjective and depending on what you want and who you are, uh, it's, it's going to be different. But uh, it's a great list if you want to go check it out. And if you have a good reason to choose something other than what's on that list, you can let us know. Uh, yeah. You know where to find us out there. You know where to find us. Uh, speaking of finding us, 
you will be finding us talking about the last part of the Planescape adventure in this episode. But there is an article out there, 13 Tips for Running Planescape. What's in this uh, blog post, Tails? Yeah, so posted on the blog United Federation of Charles, uh, there are a bunch of ideas, 13 of them, for how to run Planescape. And some of them are really quite good and worth reviewing and talking about and thinking through. Uh, sigil is a character. They don't fully flesh out this concept, but it's a neat way, a clever way to think of the city as a living, breathing sort of entity with a specific feel to it mm -hmm. um, and how it reacts in reliable ways to what happens in it. And thinking through that city's character and how this is totally different than any other city, right? That is, a, I think, a valuable way, a lens through which to look at a game that you run. Um, giving your players a stake in Sigil and later they have a tip, keep a home base. And this made me think about the Adventure of Fortune's Wheel. You know, it has some of this, but it doesn't super reinforce ties to factions or other city elements, except in very brief experiences in Chapter 2. Um, you do get a sort of home, but it doesn't do much to reinforce that. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Harmonium as antagonist, and it says, you know, this is a punk noir setting where the law lawmakers and enforcers are constant obstacles. And, and just that kind of punk versus law aspect of it I thought was really good. Um, don't trust alignment. So looking past good and evil and law and chaos because the organizations reflect how the city itself is really a neutral place. The city is neutrality. So they're all occupying. They, they are colored by that aspect. Um, embrace the weird, right? This is a place where anything can happen. So you want to make that true for the players. And the factions are a never-ending source of drama. Traditional nobility doesn't exist. It's the factions that are vying for power, holding grudges, and making mistakes. And that kind of plays out in big, tangible ways that the players ex experience. I thought that was really useful. Yeah, reading this, I didn't read the whole blog, but I read the highlights. And it helped me go back and reassess the look at this adventure that we had, both in terms of things that it could have done, as well as things that it's trying to do that we may be overlooking. And we'll mm -hmm. get into that uh, when we talk about this uh, adventure again in a couple minutes. Last but not least for this news, uh, the final days of the Seeker's Guide to Enchanting Emporium's Kickstarter are upon us. You have until Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern time to back this. So uh, if you are into magic items, if your players love magic items, if you love magic items, if you want new ways to introduce magic shops with adventures and interesting NPCs surrounding them, you can check out this Kickstarter until Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. What do you Absolutely. have, Teos? Uh, just a, a last minute recommendation that came from our Discord. The Journals of Kaz the Minotaur, the Lost, Lost Colony is out on the DMs Guild. Um, $15 to buy the Dragonlance Nexus project. And it's neat. This project has, mm -hmm. has in the past, you know, sort of existed independently, but now it's trying to sort of shape things and produce products that kind of really help expand its view of how Dragonlance can be this amazing setting. So worth checking out if you're a Dragonlance fan. I have not looked at this myself, uh, but, but the folks on our Discord were very excited about it. So we wanted to share it. Our main topic this week on Mastering Dungeons is the fifth edition Planescape box set and or the what do you call it? The 
Slipcase. What do you call that thing? The Slipcase set. Thank you. So we have been looking at all three of those books. And particularly, we have been looking at the Adventure Turn of Fortune's Wheel, the last book in the Slipcase. And we have made our way to the end, Teos. We are on our final look at the last two chapters of Turn of Fortune's Wheel. And before we get into it, I want to make a quick note here. I've been seeing a lot of feedback saying, boy, it sounds like this adventure is terrible. Oh, it sounds like this is awful. Please, please, please understand that what we're doing here is commenting more on the challenges of adventure design than we are on this particular adventure. We're, we're doing two things at once. We're trying to provide DMs with, with some foresight, possibly helping them run this adventure. And then using the adventure as a template for talking about encounter adventure and campaign design. So while it may sound harsh, what we're saying, uh, th this adventure is fine. This adventure is perfectly fine for a DM to pick up and use. It's just not used in the same way for every DM. If you're a DM that needs encounter spelled out for you, uh, this is not going, going to be the book for you. If you're okay with taking a, a template, a blueprint, and adding your own spin, this is perfectly fine and gives you enough of a uh, ladder with which to climb to the heights. As, as far as you can climb, it's just you've got to put in the energy to make that climb. I think we can do a good, you know, last takes when after after we're done with these final chapters. Um, but but I do I absolutely yep. agree. Every adventure is hard to write. It's really hard to get great adventures on paper, and especially what this adventure tries to do is create an, a, a multiverse spanning both high level and, and and low level, and it tries to do it all in whatever is ninety two pages or whatever you know something really short. Yeah, and if you just tell someone the story of this adventure, you would think that this is every bit as big as Storm King or Tomb of Annihilation, any of those. And as we covered before, this is vastly smaller, vastly. And so it is that I think yeah. that is part of the the issue that it contends with. Um, but yeah, nothing we're yeah. saying is a slight upon those who worked on this or wizards or D and D or anything like that. And we can pick pick any adventure, and we'd have something to talk about, right? Uh, the, I think yeah. this adventure truly does have sort of more design things that caused you and I to want to change things. But as you said, mm -hmm. every adventure will have something that you as a DM may either go, I don't have a problem with that, right? Like lots of like Merrick Blackman, I, I value a lot. Doesn't There are a lot of things he really sees as core problems with Tomb of Annihilation that are exactly the kind of things that I like mm -hmm. to fill in. So it's really no problem at all for me. Yep. But for him, it is right. And then there are adventures that he loves that right. I go, yeah, I don't want to do that work. I don't like that adventure. But I don't rate it highly. Wouldn't say no. it's negative about it, but you know, because yeah, and and that's the way it goes, mm -hmm. right? We all have our different things, and so our review, what it hopefully does, is help you, the DM, think through it, make a better run, learn from the design of it, and also know whether this is the kind of thing you want to take on, right? Every adventure will have something you have to take on. Yeah. Do you want to do that? And so, big time spoiler alert, we are going to spoil the last two chapters, which is basically the entire story of what was going on here. Uh, so if you are going to be playing this and you don't want to be spoiled on it, 
Now's the time to check out. And thanks for listening up to this point. So part three is called Secret Realities, and it's two chapters that tell us the uh, the denouement, uh, the climax and the denouement of this uh, of this adventure. So what do we get right away from this chapter 14 behind the wheel? Having learned that Shemeska might not be dealing with them honestly, the characters return to Sigil and Fortune's Wheel. There, Rome's platinum chip grants the characters access to the casino's hidden platinum rooms and Shemeska's private sanctum. Okay, uh, so right there I was like, boy, I wish I would have known this at the start. Mm-hmm. of this adventure uh, because it's important to explain the transition points in an adventure summary at the start of the adventure because yeah. up until this point i know that the platinum rooms were discussed in the in the chapter that talked about fortune's wheel of casino but i really didn't pay attention to that because it wasn't i wasn't told hey guess what they're going to be going now m- maybe it was but it was such a, yeah. a side that I didn't even know that this was the case. Uh, so I need to be told as a DM, hey, you need a platinum coin to get in here. And this is where everything's going to happen at the end of the adventure. So pay attention to this. And this is one of the hard parts of adventure design. How you present the adventure, not just to the DM, but how you tell the DM to present information that they need to know to the players. Because if the players, if you make too much about these this platinum room, if they know while they're at the casino the first time that these platinum rooms hold all the secrets they need, they will go to all ends to get there right now without going on the rest of the adventure. But if you don't mention them at all as the game master, as the DM, then when you are told at the end, oh yeah, this platinum coin leads you to secret rooms in the casino. As a player, if you didn't hear about those secret rooms, then you feel sort of, uh, it's a letdown, right? It's it's sort of a retconning almost. Yeah. Right. You just added things to this room that we fully explored. What, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So if, if you are going to run this, it's a hard thing to do, but try to find a way to hear about the platinum rooms and maybe even hear, oh, nobody gets in there without these special chips and only, you know, the most powerful creatures get these chips. Right. That's all you need to say. Yeah. The and seed then, is there. Yeah. And then when they flip. Exactly. Right. When Rome says, I have this thing, you want the players to go, that's a platinum chip that gets us into the back rooms where Shemeska is, and you want them to put that forward rather than Rome say, take yep. this thing, it will give you access to the back rooms. And they go, oh, okay, whatever you're saying, I don't know, I have no investment, I have no knowledge. Right. Mm-hmm. So I will say that right up front. Yeah. Teos, t- tell us now when they return to Sigil. Yeah, so they're 10th level, and as we said last time, I think it's a little bit on thin ice. It's a bit of a stretch to say that the characters would just go, hey, let's just go see Shemeska and go in. But that's the idea. And Rome tells you nothing else, so you have no other leads. So you're kind of given no option but to go into Shemeska. And if anything, I, I dislike the wording because it sort of says, like, you know, they'll warn the, the characters to be careful if they talk to anybody. And the reality is they don't have to be careful at all. Nobody stops them. 
Nobody's looking for them. Nobody recognizes them. And they can basically go through the casino, go to the back room behind the fortunes wheel, put in their platinum chip, however it is that it works, and they teleport to the first of many pocket dimensions that constitute the platinum rooms. So that's a little rough. <laughs> and we're given some information up front about yeah. what everything's like. Anything you want to say here, Sean, about that? Well, it's it's just odd because, you know, we, we again learn, we learn that Shemeska is this evil genius who has all of this. And she sends the characters off because there are thorn in her side. And in the meantime, the characters are in the Outlands for a day, months, a week, years, a month, months, years. It could be any of that thing. You know, we don't know. There are some places there where time is different. They could be traveling across vast stretches that take months. But yet nothing has changed back in Sigil. Not, not a thing. Everything is exactly like like it was. We get so much, we get like minutes counted out at certain encounters in in the, the gate towns, right? Oh, it, you're in line for an hour yeah. or or 2D4 yeah. hours or whatever, right? It to, to that point. But yeah, now it doesn't matter how much time has passed because nothing's changed. Um, so it's just, there's no stakes there. There's no, it just feels disconnected. And it occurs to me that you could have something, I'm not saying this is the perfect solution, but something along the lines of, you know, you come here and the casino is super busy. In fact, it's overwhelmed because there's so many people who have been impacted by various glitches that they're now like risking it all. Mm -hmm to make enough money to contend with these problems, right? Or seeking information right. or whatever. They're being yeah. drawn to this casino because of the tumultuous nature of the life, which would reinforce why Shemeska is doing it, right? Right. And what you could do then is because there's so much chaos there, the bouncers and the workers are dealing with this chaos now the characters can be more sneaky yeah. and you can make them feel powerful and smart and and adept at yeah. their jobs because no it is dangerous there are people looking for them but because of this chaos it gives them the opportunity to sneak in and do what they need to do and it's entirely possible the characters you know like it it's the players may think of this like, oh, it's Ocean's Eleven time, right? And instead, it's like, no, you can just walk in the door, right? Like, right. I, it wouldn't shock me if they like disguised up and did all kinds of things, all these preparations, and then they get in and go like, oh, we don't need anything. So if you even have that sign of chaos outside, yeah. or you know, someone runs in and goes, oh man, you're going to the casino. I hear it's totally overrun, you know, like overwhelmed. Then they can know, oh, okay, I don't need to overplan this thing. I can just, you know, let's just go, right? And let's play it by ear. All right, so yep. we we get some stuff. Uh, you know, the platinum area they can get to with no issues. Shemeska has a bunch of employees. They'll use the assassin stat block, uh, and we are told that you can talk to them to gain information. Um, and then we get a table of just six visitors that we can use to describe other gamblers. And these, you know, certainly fulfill the wild aspect: uh, an awakened animal, a famous mage like Big B, Evard, or Tasha, a god. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently all these people are bad at math as we'll get to so we're also told that you can cash out yeah. 
but they don't tell you what the value of a platinum chip is. So how would you cash out? What do you get? We don't know. Um, and right. you arrive from the back of the casino with your platinum chip in what's essentially hollowed out skull, uh, which may or may not be clear to the characters, but they're clearly in some place made of bone. And there are four visible teleporters and one that is not visible. Um, one that you came in through and then three others. And these three take you to th now, three. Wait, I, yeah. I, I got to add something here. Now, when you're Please. running this, be careful. Because mm -hmm. the, the box text says you see four portals. <laughs> one you came in. Well, they don't even say. They say you see four portals. The player's map, if you print the player's map or show the player's map, they're going to see five. And mm -hmm. they're visible, as are all the places that they go. So when you read it and you say... You can see four portals. People, players are going to say, well, I see five. I want to go to that one. And that might be the one that they're not supposed to go to. So just be careful. You might need to either change the box text or not show that map right away. Yeah. Yeah. Which I would probably describe these things anyway, because these Dami planes are all very fantastic. Um, in the center yeah. of this area is Cole Cook, the attendant, and apparently terribly hired personal aide of Shemeska who can provide platinum chips in exchange for secrets. And we're told we give two examples of things they've seen in the outlands that could constitute secrets, but it's not entirely clear to me. Can they just basically get all the chips they need to win or, but I guess they'd have to, because this is the only adventure they've probably played and they don't remember anything from their past. So I guess they've got to be able to get all the chips they need. I guess. So maybe that the, there should be some right. advice to sort of make them work for it. But realistically, they can keep getting chips by trading secrets. Um, Cole Cook yep. or others? Yeah. Were you going to say something? Cole Cook, if, if Shemeska wants them dead, why is Cole Cook giving them chips? Why is Cole yeah. Cook helping Apparently unaware them? of why who they are. Cole Cole Cook, yeah, send them through a portal that leads them into a bit the vacuum of space and get rid of them forever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's again, you may want to take make some tweaks there to actually make the characters work for or be in danger of. Now maybe Cole Cook doesn't want to make a big deal of it, and so therefore sends them on their way. But I, I don't. Yeah, it's really weird. Um, there are a number of things about this experience that are that are problematic. And so one is th that you can interrogate either staff or Colcook to learn the key information, which is that if you win too much, guards will come and haul you away to Shemeska's place and you'll never be seen from again. And that is supposed to be the aha. If we just win a lot, which, by the way, is three times then they'll think you're cheating and they'll take you to Shemeska. And that is literally the only possible plan that is envisioned by this adventure, which is, I think, not great, right? Like, ideally, what we'd want is some broader way that empowers the players to choose a way to react, a class of actions that could all work well. The other thing is by making this information come from the very people closest to Shemeska, it devalues her, right? And makes her seem like she's somehow not smart when she's supposed to be a mastermind. So what to me makes more sense is have this information come from the guests. And these guests have to be very yes. special kind of guests. Not just are they weird like a god or awakened or whatever, but these games, as we'll see, 
are not games that you can count on winning, uh, which I mean is sort of true of gambling, but the odds are sort of totally off. No casino would realistically run this way, and no smart person would play these games. And I mean, a 50% chance you're just what it's weird. Plus, if you win three times, which can happen statistically one out of eight times you show up in the casino and play three games, that you will win all three, mm -hmm. you are then gone forever. Shemeska is going to destroy you. You never come to this casino. <laughs> one out of eight trips, I'm going to be gone. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even our yeah. casinos don't yeah. have those ads. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you have to paint this yeah, as well, a different... I mean, technically, 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 this casino has a better odds of winning than most casinos. Yes. Right? If you have a 50-50 shot of winning, right, true. You, you're you're doing pretty good at, yeah. a, at, a, at a real casino. However, if you are killed one in eight times, yeah. that tends to put a damper on, yes. on your... Uh, and on and your, the win, you know, usually... Your will to go and your availability... Yeah. The games in real casinos are constructed to give you to keep you going and not pay attention to the dwindling of your money right. versus hard on offs, which is what this system does, right? One chip at a time. Um, yeah. So I, I, what I would do is recast this as powerful people come here to play these high stakes games, not because of the winning, but because of access to information. And that's mm -hmm. what they're really here to is trading information. So you can come in and play that information trading game and learn how to get the attention of Shemeska, which the riskiest way, if you're not going to just play every now and then to win a game or two and, you know, influence other people, is if you're short on time, you got to win a bunch, which is going to trigger them get grabbing you or some other disruption that'll cause them to take you there. Right. All right. So, yeah, well, it's. We it's yeah. it's odd when they say it's odd when they say if it's odd that <laughs> they say the book says if a patron is clearly cheating at games they gain the attention of Shemesta. any individual who wins three or more games in the platinum room is considered a cheater you do not need to for players you don't you don't need to say uh you know if you win three times that's considered cheating you just say if you get caught cheating you're, you know, you will get your goal. They're going to cheat no matter what, right? You tell them, if you just say, there are ways to cheat at this game if you figure it out, uh, they will make 72 rolls to try to cheat at the game because that's fun yeah. and that's their characters. And and so just say, this is the game. And they'll be like, can we try to cheat? Yeah, sure, you can yeah. try to cheat. Oh, yeah, you failed in that attempt and off you go. Now we're continuing the story. Yeah, so let me go through these real fast. First is Dungeon Land, mm -hmm. which is you appear on a rocky cluster drifting in the ethereal plane, and there are these four floating crystals that depict each a scene from a dungeon where a group of a party of adventurers are trying to survive. You bet it says at least one chip, but you shouldn't bet more than one. If you win, you'll get two chips, otherwise, you've got zero chips. Um and it's uh, overall a, a bad thing to bet on the adventurers because you roll a d10 on a one to seven they lose on an eight to ten they win so really you should bet against the adventurers unless if you you can submit a magic item and then you can roll twice on the results table and pick the higher result so roll twice keep one on eight plus that is a 51 percent chance of winning 
So I think it's actually better to just pick them losing. But anyway, you um, I guess you get a little. Yeah. I know. I'd have to pass look at the them, odds. Pass them the your odds. cursed items. Yeah, pass on your cursed items. Um, yeah, that would be great. That's smart. Yeah, and and that's the kind of thing that I wish it encouraged more, right? Like like yeah, here's a magic item, but this is terrible for them. I want to give them the item that will actually hurt them. Like that's the more clever move. Um, but what you're supposed to do is you know play a magic item and have a 51% chance of winning, uh, which means you probably have to play this a bunch of times to to hit it. Um, uh, I like the concept, you know, the fun idea of turning the table and watching adventures face the green devil face or other things like that is neat. We only get uh, a table of four scenes, which I'm like, why is this a table? But, you know, as usual, everything here is if it's a list, it's a table. And so we have four ideas of what is happening uh, in addition to the intro box text. Um, second area, Super Tempora Arena. And these get weird and weirder. You're in a white room with a black podium at the center. There is an archway you came in through and one that you can come out of. The person at the podium tells you that behind the other portal, two unfathomably ancient beings are about to conclude an eons-long struggle. Bowlg the cosmic rot and Volshiz the ever-empty. And you can bet on one of them. Which... Uh, obviously, is a 50-50 chance. You don't know anything about these people. And in fact, there is nothing in the adventure to tell you about these people. <laughs> uh, in fact, there isn't even art yep. for them. Um, she can tell you additional things, but only if you ask. What would that information be, Sean? Uh, well, you have to bet before you enter. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no information about the being, so... If you ask, if you are asked DMs, you have to make things up, but it's just random. Yeah. Um, now, what happens if you go through the portal to watch this actually take place? For every minute you spend in this second area, a hundred years pass in sigil. So you age 10 years for every round that you're in there. Um, assuming... I think you roll 3d6 to see how long it takes mm -hmm. for this to conclude. Yeah. So averaging out to about 10.5, we'll say 10, we'll drop to five. And I don't know why, Sean, uh, they say you have to be there you, at least 100 10 rounds. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Yep. Yeah, it, it is weird. And, and for me, what happened here was they're like, well, we might not have killed enough characters yet. And we need to get this glitch thing going. So let's just say that if you go into this room, you die. Because you don't know you're aging. I don't think. I don't think it tells you that you're aging until you step out. And if you step out and you've aged past 100 years, you just turn to dust, assuming you're a mm -hmm. human. If assuming you're not an elf, basically. Right. Um, or any other Dwarf, uh, five, species yeah. that lasts more than 100 years. Uh, and then if that happens, your, your your glitch character appears nearby. It's really weird. I mean, who would play this game, right? So, like, if you're, I mean, we talked about, like, oh, you might see a famous mage, like Bigby, Tasha. You know, what are they, Everett, what are they doing in this room? Like, yeah. what? Like, your lifespan is kind of the I, big, I, most I don't know. valuable thing. Yeah. Right. I don't have an answer here. Uh, you need mm -hmm. to make it up DMs. You need to think ahead. 
and come up with something that's that's really cool uh that moves the story forward gives the characters what they need but yeah you're on your own there yeah i mean i think i'd probably just have some other some aspect of the battle somehow impact you and energies wash over you and there's a risk of death but I, I, the aging thing seems really strange to me um and i just in general characters i've i've not found that characters love having their characters aged glitch or not glitch so i i don't know um it's also unclear if you die from old age your glitch comes back at the previous age i don't know i guess has to it's weird um Fiend's Ante is the last one. You arrive on a cliff overlooking a blasted planet. There are two fiends, Vixir the Pit Fiend and Bolmaz the Balor, playing a modified 30-minute version of Three Dragon Ante. You can sit down and play. There are stars in the night sky which represent worlds, and you win these stars to gain control of being able, the permission to invade those worlds. So that's why they're playing this sort of Blood War version. Um, but you can sit down and play too and put down your platinum chip. You get a dozen iron tokens and then you make dexterity sleight of hand or wisdom insight checks, DC 18. If you succeed, you double your tokens, lose half. Otherwise, if you fail twice, you're out. Uh, you're going to make three checks total every 10 minutes. Um, also, apparently every 10 minutes, you can try to goad the fiends into attacking each other. But it's sort of unclear what, and, and if they slay each other, you win. But like, are, would the DM roll out the combat and you watch, like, by virtue of just attacking each other? Is this, are they out? It's unclear. If you win, or if you're the last person standing, you get three chips, which is the best way to get platinum chips. But I guess it doesn't matter because you don't know what they're worth, can't cash them out, according to the adventure. Um, and it's not about winning three chips, it's about winning three times. So I don't know. Uh, but you do get an infernal document saying you own the rights to invade the worlds you won, which is interesting. But um, yeah, those two rooms are, they're a thing. <laughs> they they are a thing. So and eventually. We're assuming that at yeah. some, we're assuming at some point you will win three times and then the guards will come and drag you off to Shemeska's uh, quarters where normally people who cheat will be imprisoned or killed, but you are different. You are glitch. You are important in this world. So you go to a beautiful, large room. First, you go through an area where two uh, archons are watching the goings on in the platinum rooms. And then you go to Shemeska's area where there is the inevitable mustache twirling or in this case fox whisker twirling um and explanation of what happened here there is a fight with a eater of knowledge and a maleficent which shemeska will not join she will just she will counterspell and she will use her defensive abilities to stay unharmed but if you defeat the eater of knowledge and the maleficent you then will get the reward of having Shemeska tell you this plan that she has hatched. So only in the actual final encounter do you as the DM actually learn why all of this has been going. Uh -huh. And basically, Shemeska has locked these Modrons who are part of the final Modron march or the previous Modron march uh, in this loop so that they think that 
the Outlands are under infernal attack. So when they are then sent back to Mechanus, they will tilt the reality of the multiverse to try to make up for this um, fiendish invasion of the Outlands and therefore of the multiverse. And then she can take advantage, somehow take advantage of the chaos. That was it. That was the big plan all along. Scooby-Doo ripped the mask off, and that was it. Yeah, the, the, she defeated the characters some time ago for some reason. And strangely, they returned, which I guess was tied into this sort of it was a glitch caused by overall what she was doing related to these Modrons being captured. Um, so she's killed them dozens of times. Um, they were the first time she killed you, I guess, or whenever you returned, she noticed that you were diminished and your memories fractured. And so they would just dump you off at the morgue and you were easy to kill. But this time, I guess you've managed to get to be higher level. You now, you know, get her information. Um, and, she will now, um, so she can use an amulet of the planes to escape. Now, it doesn't mean high-level characters or 10th-level characters can't possibly, 10th or 11th, I forget what they are, but they, you know, they might still be able to take her out. Um, that It's not addressed in the adventure, but she will use her capabilities to escape uh, if possible, if she's threatened. But um, she basically at this point just sort of drops out um, with the last bit of knowledge being that she captured a piece of you, one of your incarnations, and it's in her wall of gemstones, along with many other terrible beings she tells you not to free, because bad idea, plus not covered in the adventure. Um, but you can free that last incarnation. And this takes us to sort of the last part of this chapter, which they call Unity of Self and Fate of the Multiverse. The idea is you will release your incarnation. It will appear just a glimpse and then vanish, and it drops treasure. Really weird. Um, you get a flood of memories as this missing piece of you is returned to you. And you can now use this to flesh out your characters and decide what you become when this piece merges with you. So you might choose one of your incarnations and say, that's the true me. Or maybe a new one, which was this one locked away. And you can just create a new character. And this becomes your one and only true character. No more glitch. All the other incarnations are gone. You can die again, et cetera. All that is, you're just back to playing a character. But because of this missing pieces of stuff, you are level 17. As you once again are your former formidable self. Um, and you're encouraged to fill out all your info. There are various questions here and so on. And then you get to choose magic items based on three options. Um, you can choose from the things that got dropped on the floor and just kind of totally kit your character out. With DM approval. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think that's cool. I think that's cool. I think that's a good way to fill the story-wise. It's a good way to get people who want to play high-level D&D to mm -hmm. that level where they can play high-level D&D without going through some of the levels that may seem like more of a slog. Yeah. Uh, because... D&D rules always break down at high levels, no matter what edition you're playing, no matter what game you're playing. Uh, it seems that that high level uh, yeah. RPGs slash D&D don't go well. So I'm cool with that. Yeah, me too. Uh, so I, I like off the, the idea. characters go. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, that idea of the glitches uh, being resolved, I think, is cool. Um, the idea of them choosing, you know, who they are, and I think there's nice space given here um, to to try to help the character, the players, flesh out those characters and think through this process. Um, I think there are a lot of illogical bits in the chapter, but but that last bit I like too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So off the characters can go to try to free the Modrons who are trapped in this loop. Where is this loop? This loop is beneath the Outlands in the realm of Zemnid, the Beholder God. And yeah, Zemnid, yeah. Uh, yeah. Zemnid is, is, is covered in, the, the, uh, in a very small section of the, the guidebook that comes in the slipcase. Um, and the idea is that Rome, when you go and meet up with Rome again, Rome, I guess, does a new analysis based on your being level 17 and goes, you know, I didn't tell you everything because it didn't matter and you would just have died. But now that you're 17th level, hey, you know what? You are strong enough to do what I could not and go save the other Modrons. And hey, I was part of the last Modron March where we were all caught in the shifting realm of Gazemnid, the beholder god of deception, gases and obscurement. Uh, this is all messing up the outlands and the plains. So, you know, go there and I will give you 15,013 gold pieces if they help. Now, that's a prime number. I don't know why that number, do you know what the significance of that number is? Is it like a chapter in the Bible or something? Like I couldn't really find anything. 15,013, I saw that and I started to try to think it through. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I had the rest of this chapter to read. <laughs> and I went, I don't have right. the brain power any my, listener, my brain is mush already from trying to, yeah. yeah. Any listener knows, you know, tell us what's 1513. Um, yeah, so the, the task is go, yeah, go to Gazemnid's realm, uh, find the Modron leader X01, and help the Modrons escape so that they can stop messing up reality. Um, Gazemnid, by the way, appears in the Neverwinter uh previous expansion uh and i did a video on it which it was sort of out of place in in that um where they put it but it's interesting that they they wanted to put it in there and and so Xemnid, you can see the beholder god and, and characters take it down by watching the video of neverwinter it's interesting yeah yeah and so Xemnid uh is in this underground realm beneath the outlands and these Modrons are just marching endlessly around and around and around, bathed in this fiendish influence. Uh, Zemnid will watch the characters through fungal groves with eyes and, and speak to the characters as they go. And I, I, this is an aside, and I'm, I'm saying this more to show what an idiot I am, and, and so why you shouldn't listen to me, <laughs> is because throughout this whole thing, I'm like, I feel like this was a... 250 page adventure that somebody had to take down to 100 mm -hmm. pages because this is just this is one thing and a normal human being would not see this but i did and this is not boasting this is showing i have a problem sure and it says we are told that gazemnid always refers to itself in the third person and then it gives examples of things that gazemnid would say mm -hmm. such as unworthy when you kill a creature, uh, Gazemnid says, unworthy, but we accept your offering. 
which is not third person, it's first person <laughs> plural. And so, and and the thing is, I know I I what I did there, Teos, was I went right to the credit section and said, who edited this? And every single one of the editors was someone who would notice that. Yeah, who would yeah. someone who would say, say, oh, this is third first person, not third person, because I've had my work scrutinized yeah. at that level by yeah. people before and this the fact that that wasn't caught tells me that this was pieced together in a way that wasn't what was expected of yeah. the adventure to begin with that makes sense yeah and, and right. there are a lot of things here i have, know, we I have a problem too yeah. Right. The guidebook had some edits that clearly any editor that we've worked with at Wizards, who are the people named here, they would catch these things. And so that's that whole process issue that yeah. is so critical. Um, all right. So this area, to try to not do it too quickly or too, too, too long a thing, do it a little faster. Um, we have six locations on a map and the Modrons are marching sort of endlessly across them. And the idea is that we, at first, cannot do anything because we haven't located the X01 leader. That's not the clearest it could be, to, I think, the way that the encounters are set up. But that's, that's kind of an important thing for the DM to understand. And you're going to sort of get acclimated to what's going on, to the Modrons, and then eventually, and, and through the process of these rooms, which I guess you could visit multiple times, um, you need to figure out a way for to get the modrons out and there are a couple so you begin with being in a high above a 50 feet above on a cliff overlooking the march and you have the portal you came in through which is or the, also the portal that somehow rome got out of unclear how Mo, rome got up this 50 foot thing but somehow he did and got out um you interact with some in this first room you interact with uh, a beholder that's sort of uh, um, strange um, and mummified uh, then an enormous purple worms it's purple worm stat block but it's an enormous eye stock with a kind of destruction disintegration aoe attack but also the ability to, i guess bite you like it does um, shows up it eats the beholder and attacks you second one shows up and and so this just gives you an idea of the the wild environment you're in. Uh, the next encounter shows you one of Shemeska's plans, which is that there is this three foot skull of an arch fiend hanging from a wall, and it's bathing the Modrons in its defiling essence. Uh, it can speak because it used to be a arch devil, and you can or arch fiend, and you can take it to the nine hells. Um, which is what it wants you to do. It casts it casts Dominate Monster, in fact, to try to convince you to do so. And it knows that somewhere in the caverns is the Maw of Gzebnid, which can create a portal. So you get that bit of information from it. Any comments on this interaction, Sean? A little weird. Yeah, not really. It was This was the point where I hoped, okay, now we're going to get an adventure, an actual <laughs> adventure that I can sort mm -hmm. of lead my that the designers will tell me how to run no. to make this a full impact 17th level. No, it was more put this together yourself and, and figure it out and make it work. 
Yeah. As I, my brain just melted. It is, it is really hard. And I, I think this is a hard chapter to prep for any DM because it's not the, it's almost more like a set of ingredients, but adventures that tend to just give you a set of ingredients and tell you to cook do so in a different fashion than this does. So it's almost written like a typical adventure, but it's not a typical adventure. And it does require more of a, like, I'm going to cook with this ingredients and make it fun. Um, the next one is Sludge Covers the Floor, the Remains of a Fiend that Shemeska freed to terrorize the Modrons. It's sentient and evil. It deals a ton of acid, which I don't know how it's not killing all the Modrons, but somehow they're just trampling it and keeping it down. Um, but if you can reroute the Modrons for a few rounds, you can talk to the Sludge, and it'll tell you about this Beholder portal to the Gate Town of Hopeless and how to activate it. Then it'll attack you. <laughs> so you get at least a little yeah. brief communication um and the portal is basically there are these floating rocks nearby and you can hop amongst them and one of them has a portal inside of it but there's also some beholders that'll attack you so if somehow you can get the modrons there which in theory could be just by they can create like a bridge then you could all go in through there um but of course, you must first find X01. So on we go, because you can't do anything yet. Right. Then you get to Xemnid's Maw. This is a huge kind of teeth thing with a bridge made of Modrons, essentially, though it's not really, I guess that is the Modrons in the, in the art. But um, the right. Maw will just eat any Modrons or anything else that falls in. And it's connected to Xemnid. If you can talk to Xemnid and convince it to not eat everything and suppress this sort of rift nature, it then can become a portal to the gate town of chaos in the outlands. It will eat a few, but, but it can do that. So that's a possible way out. But again, you can't do it yet because right. you haven't gotten to X01. So finally, in the sixth and last encounter, mm -hmm. you get to X01. You must fight the four Septon Modrons that carry the injured X01. Um, they will drop their leader when they're incapacitated or if they take 30 damage from one source, which is not a thing players usually figure out unless you tell them, which is a little weird. But if you can separate X01 from them, and I think that's what I would probably as DM try to communicate that kind of they feel they must protect it. And they don't see a way out of this. They're right. logical, law, robot type. So if you figure out a way to separate them or incapacitate the other guys, you can talk to it and realize or interact with it Realize that X01's mind is overwhelmed due to the, all the flawed orders it had back in its original march, plus this bizarre environment that's bathing it with the sense that everything in the multiverse is wrong. All these Modrons think that sort of the blood war has taken over and evil is everywhere in the Outlands, that this is the Outlands, and that they must go to Mechanus and do something drastic to correct it. Correct it. So... The end of it being you figure out, hey, you know what? I could put the Mosaic Mimmer inside X01 and essentially reboot it. If you do that, mm -hmm. then we go back to Chapter 2, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> right. Then we go back and we say, wait a second. Remember that sheet that we were supposed to fill out <laughs> as we put, put memories or put information in? How valid was that information? Was it skewed because of our own opinions was it skewed mm -hmm. in one way or another because if it was that then will change the entire reality in which we live and there's a chart that shows if you skew towards law then this will happen if you skew towards evil this will happen and 
So the accuracy of that information will dictate then the future of the world going forward. Uh, based on that, then we get some ideas for continuing adventures. They might work with Pharaoh. They might work with Rome if they're still on well, good yeah, terms. Just, Maybe even Sean, Shemesca. to take a step back, right? So the idea is, so you fix X01. X01 comes out a certain way based on what you did in Chapter 2, which right. I think DMs want to be a little careful. This is feels a little bit like the end of Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, where it's very easy that you think you did things well, and suddenly the DM slash adventure tells you, yeah, you ruined the multiverse. And you're like, I was just trying to do what my character did, right? And so you want to be a little careful about find the fun in X01 coming out a certain way so that maybe the players will just laugh mm -hmm. if it comes out inconsistent or skewed, or they'll feel great if it comes out accurate. Because once you correct X01, now you can tell X01, let's get you out of here. Choose one of the portals you found and get all the Modrons out. And they're going to go to a certain yep. place, depending on which gate you choose. And you may not realize the implications of it. So sometimes it's nice to give, if, if the characters know of more than one portal, let them figure it out, right? They are powerful 17th level characters. They mm. might be able to just travel there, right? And so for example, if you release all the Modrons into Sigil, that's not great for the city to have a stream of thousands of more Modrons coming in. So let them figure things out and make smart choices as their genius characters would or you know powerful characters would mm -hmm. um the other gate towns also have different aspects to them and you know but so let, let them feel good about those choices because now the modrons are going to go back yeah. to mechanus and essentially rewrite the plane or whatever logic mm -hmm. and you're either going to have everything's fine because your chapter two stuff was accurate or Chaos because it's inconsistent and slotty operate on opposed and the numerous creatures experience glitches until Primus reboots this whole thing probably a long time from now. Or it's skewed and the Modrons are going to like color the world. So like an option is if the skew was evil, the Modrons think the whole world is evil, the multiverse is evil. So they join Celestials, Celestials and crusade against evil across the plains. And this would like change your campaign, right? If you were to continue playing in a campaign world. Um, well, well that, that's yeah. the thing, right? It's it's if you're going to continue in a campaign, yes. but you're not. Maybe you are. I don't know. Or, or at least. Or maybe this becomes no, maybe your version you are, of the Forgotten the, Realms now. I don't know. It's up to you. Right. It, it, exactly. It's, it's, it's these huge consequences could come, but, but, but yeah. not. If you want. Right. Because yeah. this is the end of the adventure. Yeah. Right. Uh, and we get, you know, some art of like that, that kind of like, you know, angels and Modrons fighting together kind of thing. It's yeah. very funny. So, so it's worth, if you're going to DM this, think through how to make any of those results. In fact, you know, chapter two ages ago, right? So you're going to know for a long time what this outcome is when they get to this place. So be prepared for that. So sure. you make that into a fun idea because there won't be a whole lot of guidance here due to probably space reasons to help you that. And then it's just sort of like, that is literally the end. And now we get the like, hey, how could you continue uh, with the adventure and a sort of little bookend conclusion? So, Sean, you were talking about some options yeah. that they give you. 
Yeah, I mean, they say you. Here are some ideas for continuing the adventure. Um, you could do st more stuff with the sigil factions. When they hear your exploits, they may try to recruit you. They may try to fight you, depending on what you've done. But eventually, the Lady of Pain herself will send a, a Dabas to tell you to stay out of trouble and give you a cubic gate, or you will find a cubic gate nearby as your reward for maybe saving the multiverse or maybe screwing up the multiverse. Maybe the cubic gate is, hey, you know what? You've really messed up. Now it's time to go fix what you've done. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's sort of more of the same. It's here are some ingredients for UDM to make a fun, wacky, mm -hmm world spanning uh campaign if you have the time the energy and the knowledge to do so yeah yeah all right Woof. that was a lot um Oof. you know yeah. i think when we came into this we asked ourselves as we're reading the setting setting has some neat ideas i don't necessarily know what to do with them i would love for this adventure mm -hmm. to tell me what to do with them and i think we got some of that right like mm -hmm. i think that we got some adventures and mm -hmm. gate towns and stuff that maybe are helpful of running a gate town. We didn't get a whole lot in Sigil, unfortunately, so that's kind of still a little bit up in the air, right? There were no great examples of how to use the factions or great exam, a little bit maybe, but yeah. I don't know. What did you think about that aspect of sort of the adventure yeah. as a teaching method? Or I, I think this is this is what I think. I think... If someone said, Sean, here, here is Planescape. I need you to write an adventure to show DMs what you can do with a Planescape adventure. I would sit down and write a 250,000 word adventure. And then they said, oh, sorry, you can only write it in 90,000 words. I would probably end up writing something like this. Mm -hmm assuming that it had to be through levels one to 17. Right. And I would hate every second of it <laughs> because I would know all of the things that I was leaving out. Yeah. I would know all of the things and, and cutting out the words that I would have to cut out would kill me. Sure. Always does. Uh, yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And and, yeah. and so that's what I think we have here. I think we have a blueprint for a fun campaign mm -hmm. that requires a game master to do a lot of work and have a lot of knowledge in order to do it in a way that's truly, truly challenging and delightful to yeah. a group of players. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, and it's... Uh... It's so big. It, what it does do well is it is often very bold, right? Walking castles and visits to gate downs and portals. Mm -hmm. And I mean, all of the Zemnid stuff is completely wild. Shemeska's uh, place is not boring at all. Um, but it it puts work on you to keep that linked together and feeling fun versus mm -hmm. just becoming backdrop, right? At some point, you're just like, yeah, oh, there's an alien at the casino yeah. table next to you. Cool, don't care, whatever. It's just, you know. So finding the ways to make it tangible. And to me, the road to this should have been through the glitches. 
this could have been the unifying glue mm -hmm. that would have knocked this adventure out of the park in my mind. And the thing that as a DM, I would try to do the most, which is to say everything in this that they encounter could trigger something personal for a player. Right. And that could mm -hmm. be really neat. Right. Like if you have a random player that you say, hey, you look at this walking castle and you realize you've been in it before. And you only remember this part of it, but here's yeah. what you remember, right? And now it's personal, right? Uh, you're dealing with this faction. You think you might have been either a member or you hated this faction. You tell me, right? And then you choose an allegiance right there. And that character now has a thing, right? And everything in here could be tangible. Yeah. You worked at the casino, right? You know, or you've been here once. Or just any of that. Those kinds of experiences could have yeah. could be the glue that tie all of this mm -hmm. together and make it a fun experience. And get to throw those tough moments that every campaign has where you're just kind of like, I, I could end this now and then my life would be better. <laughs> you're like, I'm going to keep going a little longer, right? Like, it needed that. Yeah. You know, scratch off things, scratch off games, you take a coin, you scratch the yeah. little silvery stuff. I, what, what this adventure needed was six of those full sheets, one for each player. Say you have six players. And at an encounter, the DM says, player one, scratch off area seven on your sheet. And the, the person scratches it off and it says, you remember being here and you remember this person. You hate this person and know they have to die. <laughs> and and let, let that carry the weight That's or awesome. scratch it off. And you know that there's a secret door in one of these rooms that leads you to this area. that, And you just scratch that off and let the player go. Uh, Sean, that I want to gives say something and you could do it in a little bit of space. So for DMs who love that idea, and I love that idea, you can do that. There is a paint you can buy that mm -hmm. essentially makes a scratch kind of situation. A friend of mine, when we yeah. did our Tomb of Annihilation campaign, painted the map up, the grid map, so we could scratch off as we traveled. Nice. It was really fun. So, you know, if you love Sean's idea, find all you got to do is find what paint there lets you it do that. You know, web search that, and then you can uh, deploy this plan because that's a great plan. That's a lot of fun. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, I after after going through this, I am definitely not going to run this. Mm -hmm. uh, I <laughs> I don't uh, have the time, the energy to create all of the connections that need to happen yeah. to make this make this adventure work. But if you do have the time. Uh, you you have a lot of ingredients here with which you can create something really fun for your players. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's interesting. I mean, I, we did not review Spelljammer, but looking at Spelljammer, I, I didn't love that adventure. And it's funny because I don't know that I love this one, but it's for entirely different reasons. And and I, I tend to agree that there are parts of of this that I would like an experience like this, but I don't think I would run this. I, I will say I like this more. Then the second edition adventure, Great Modron March, which is often talked about as a hallowed classic. You know, we reviewed that on our show. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely think this is better than that. Right. For sure. For sure. Yeah. This at least gives you a story that you can follow a thread. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and it brings for, the yeah, planes to light sure. and all that sort of stuff. So I, I for sure, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like mm -hmm. liked a lot of aspects. Of it. And it's not far from where I could have really wanted to run it. Uh, but as you said, there's just enough work mm -hmm. that I would have to do that that I I I have a long list of things I have to I want right. to run. 
uh, including my Blade Runner right. campaign I just started. So there you go. I would have to be smarter than Shemeska in order to create an adventure to show how smart Shemeska is in manipulating the characters and having to keep them alive, but still not wanting them to succeed. And that would have to weave itself through every single mm. uh, part, even not maybe not every encounter, but at least every single session, every single adventure session would need something in there to build that up. What if you just say that Shemeska isn't the mastermind you think she is, or the, the, the adventurer says she is, and she works for a god, and you choose what that god is, and that's the real brains, right? So mm -hmm. you're really actually up against a god, but you'll never meet the god because right. this is, they're smart enough to cover their tracks, and you know that's a possibility, right? Mm -hmm. A god of fate or a that's, god of that's true chaos well. or something like that, mm -hmm. and, and just take the, the, yeah. the heavy lifting off of Shemeska because it, it is a little of a weird thing. I hope people have gotten some use out of this. And I hope if you are running this, that you will show Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Next time here on Mastering Dungeons, we will do our special holiday edition that you are not going to want to miss. I'm, Anything I'm else either. to say before we head off into the wild blue yonder? I, I'm excited for next week. Uh, in fact, I'd like to hear from the folks on our Discord and watching the video and listening to the podcast what you would like us to talk about for our uh, our, our right. holiday last uh, of the year show. Um, yeah. And thank you to everybody. And thank you. And as Taya says, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons, whether you're a Master of Dungeons supporter, a Master of the Realms supporter, who gets a shout out in our show notes, or a Master of the Multiverse supporter. Those Patreon or those patrons get a special shout out like this. Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Trace, Krishna Simonse, Andy Shockney, Ross Sandler, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Robert Pasley. Post Fiction RPG Audio, Mike Nelson, Falcon Neal, Sean Molly, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, The Mathemagician, Chad Lynch, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Brian King, Chad Jackson, Sean Hurst, Ben Heisler, and Paige Lightman, The Mighty Jerd, Nathan Fuller, Andy Edmonds, at Nerdronomicon.com, Seth Eckel, Darren Chandler, Evil John, Merrick Blackman, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, and Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thank you for your support. If you would like to become a patron of the show heading into 2024, you could do that and we would appreciate it. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash mastering D&D and you can show us your support in that way. If you can't, no problem. You can support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, or leaving us a pod a podcast review on Apple Podcasts. Teos, what you been up to in the social media world? Yeah, uh, uh, you can check out my latest video. Go to alphastream.org, and from there you'll get a link to all my YouTubes where I did a, a video uh, as part of the Success in RPGs series, and there's more to come. Um, I'd be great to see you there, and thank you for everybody who shares our hosts 
whether it's of our own things that we mm -hmm. do or if it's for the show, that is really helpful. Thank you. Not just the liking, but the sharing. That means the world to us. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Sean, where do we find you? Yes. Uh, you can find me on all the socials at Sean Merwin, and you can follow the podcast on all the show socials at Mastering DND. You can also leave comments on our Patreon. Uh, if you join our Patreon, you get access to our uh, what's the thing he called there? That stuff. Our Discord, stuff. our Patreon. Uh, our Discord, our Discord uh, server. Yes. Or you can leave comments on our YouTube channel, which is surprisingly called mastering dungeons so we've made it to 17th level and we've made it through this planescape slipcase set what are we going to do now i think i'm going to look back on my life and consider the different stages of me as incarnations and there's always that promise that i can mm -hmm. bring more or less from one of those incarnations like college me high school me mm -hmm. First job me. Yeah. Grizzled veteran me. Yeah. yeah. I think I think probably I'll just wager my life on a 50-50 bet. <laughs> Smart. Tasha would. <laughs>